In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I don't need to tell you that you can find the strangest stuff on YouTube. Um, it's really astonishing. And as I was studying this passage, a couple search terms came to my mind, and I, I entered them, and <laughs> lo and behold, uh, something came up that ironically fits brilliantly <laughs> with where we're going today. It has something to do with agriculture, but it also has something to do with amplification, about listening to the soils. Now, this is from Germany, and the extent of my German comes from episodes of Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> so we're going to be kind enough, thank you for getting that, for, um, wow, y'all are old. Um, so in order to help us sift through that, I've went ahead and been kind enough to supply you the subtitles. But listen to what a few scientists geek out when it comes to listening to the soils. Markus Mäder bei der Arbeit. Er hört dem Boden zu. Also ich habe die Neugier halber in den Ferien die Sensoren, die wir bis jetzt an den Bäumen gebraucht haben, zum Baumgeräusch aufnehmen, mal im Boden gesteckt. Und ich war einfach wirklich wahnsinnig überrascht, gewesen, wie vielfältig das Leben, wie vielfältig die Geräusche sind, wie im Boden selber kommuniziert wird von den Tieren. Das habe ich schon sehr eindrücklich gefunden. Heute ist das Sounding Soil Team bei Bauer Birrer. Er baut biologisch an. Für die Bodenaufnahme steckt Markus Mäder die Sonde ca. 20 cm tief in die Erde. Und dann heißt es absolute Ruhe. Kein Geräusch oberhalb der Erde soll die Aufnahme verfälschen. Es fühlt sich gut an, seinen eigenen Boden zu hören. Weil für uns ist eben eigentlich wichtig, dass wir mit dem Boden zusammenleben können. Für uns ist es das wichtig, dass wir eigentlich einen Einblick haben in den Boden, in die Bodenaktivität. Und auch Rückschlüsse ziehen auf die Bewirtschaftung, die wir obendrauf machen, anhand der Bodenstruktur oder der Bodenlebewesen. Ja. Wow, right? Oh my gosh, how much did they pay for that study, really? Um, what a bunch of geeks. I know, let's put a microphone 20 centimeters underneath the soil. Fascinating though, right? You're going, wow, where is this going? Funny stuff, but what, it, I mean, again, because my German's so rusty, let's just listen again to what that, that organic farmer said. He said, um, carefully, not the video, but just the slide. Uh, it's very valuable to gain insight into our own soil, the activity in this way, thanks to the knowledge about the soil structure and the soil organisms, conclusions can be drawn about the agriculture on the surface, which is a way of saying, go down deep, and listen well, and you kind of find out the way you're treating it on the top. Oh, I feel a metaphor coming on. <laughs> that the quality and the condition of what lies beneath is an indicator of the kind of treatment that you give it to it at the top. That's you, and that's me. And as we said at the beginning of our worship, when it comes to our attention, which has to do with art and with beauty, it also has to do with faith. And in order to understand, kind of 
to understand the condition of our own hearts, the condition of our ability to give attention to it, we, we kind of have to come to the surface and, and consider what is that condition? What's, what's going on? How are, what is the agriculture of our souls? I think that's a worthy topic, and Jesus does too. Today is the Feast of Epiphany, the moment in which we remember the wise men finding Jesus and falling down at his feet. Do you know how absurd a painting would be to have whoever these fellows were standing at the manger and them looking at their smartphones? Can you imagine what an absurd scene that would be? No, what did they do? They fall down on their knees and kiss the soil before the one whom they believe is a king. And Jesus, in this morning's passage, is going to teach us a parable. A parable that you may have heard any number of times if you've grown up in the church. A parable that may make sense to you on a first reading, even if you've never heard it. But that parable, if I may cut to the chase, is what he's getting at is this. Jesus is saying, if you would follow me, you must learn to hang on my every word. Which either makes him the most supreme narcissist, or something that we must all reckon with. What does it mean to hang on his every word? I think it boils down to three things under three headings. The productivity from his word, the curiosity about his word, and a hospitality to his word. Productivity, curiosity, hospitality. How do we hang on his every word? Let's consider that idea in three ways. And I wonder if you might lend your attention again to this text by standing to hear, would you? Our central text for today is found in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word, that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, 
when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Thank you. The setting that Jesus is in is one we are accustomed to finding him in. Sometimes he's in houses, but once again, he is here by the seashore. And this time, the crowd is big enough that he's got to get in a boat so that everybody can hear him and see him. And so it's a large crowd. And so he does that. He steps in the boat, and then without warning, without introductory slides, next on Jesus TV, he just breaks into this story, this parable. And we have the advantage of having heard the entirety of it, but they do not. They're just standing there. They're listening. I'm sure a crowd is gathering. Oh, what's, what am I missing? They stand there to listen, and he just breaks into the story. And he, he talks about a sower who sows seed, and in four different ways he does, and three of them are failures, and one of them works, and not only does it work, it flourishes. And what is he getting at, even at this point? And, and even to those that are beginning to process the story that he's telling, and even you and I, who if, you, if you've, maybe you've never heard that before, and you're trying to figure out what is he getting at, even though you've, you hear, we have the luxury of having heard him give an explanation to his disciples later. What's his point? He's the Lord. He's come to spread his word. And what is the intention behind spreading that word? To hear himself talk? No. To draw a crowd? No. To be a spectacle? No. He has come to speak in order that those who hear would take what he receives and would bear fruit. That there would be a response to what he said and that something would come up as a result of having heard it. What we're talking about here in this first point is this productivity from his word. That's his purpose. We're going to rescue that word productivity from your 21st century way of thinking about it in a minute. But for the point, for the moment, let's just say this. People have come to hear, and they're meant to benefit from what he says, and what they produce comes from the basis of what has been sown in them. Jesus has come to produce fruit in those who hear. Fruit what? Fruit cake? What are you talking about? John the Baptist, when he shows up at the beginning as the advance team for Jesus, he says, bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. That whatever Jesus has come to say, whatever seed he's come to sow in the terms of his word, it will involve repentance for all of us who hear it. It will represent a turnabout, a change of orientation, a, a renewal of our own hearts, it will require repentance. And where does that repentance lead? Well, the fruit of obedience. That we become not merely hearers of his word, 
that we become doers of it. If you love me, he says in the Gospel of John, you will keep my commandments. That is the fruit of obedience. And, and where does that obedience map onto? What is the point of that obedience? It's not just simply, can you be in compliance with what I said to prove to me that you are loyal to me? No. It's not merely compliance. It's the fruit of obedience that leads to what? The spread of the kingdom. You heard Andrew speak of parables last week that Jesus teaches about the kingdom, what it's like. What is the kingdom? It is wherever God's truth and beauty and goodness and restoration take root. That's the kingdom. Whoever is influence begins to catch fire and begins to kindle hearts such that they themselves come to long and enjoy and delight in that and want to see that thing spread. That's where the kingdom is going. And that kingdom is spread in primarily two ways through bearing witness about it, through the one who has come to usher the kingdom into its place, to speak well of Jesus, to point others unto him. It's through bearing witness about his reality and his goodness and his grace and his love that the kingdom is spread, but it is also spread through the doing of good works, prepared in advance for those who love him. To do that which is merciful, to bring justice wherever you can insofar as you are able to do that. That's how the kingdom spreads. That's how the kingdom is meant to spread. Through the bearing of witness, through the commitment of good words, through mercy and love and justice, all of those ways. And there's one other point. The fruit of repentance, which leads to the fruit of obedience for the sake of the fruit of the kingdom, but also by the fruit of the Spirit that these are just more than commands that you follow, more than purposes that you're out to fulfill. They're out to be the overflow of an inner transformation such that God's Spirit now lives in you and begins to produce something in you inwardly such that these other things begin to manifest. And that's why I have to be really clear here about what I mean by the word productivity. Because right now you hear the word productivity, and for some of you, you might be thinking of Buddy the Elf. Right? He makes his etch-a-sketches, but really not at the level of productivity that the rest of the elves do, right? And he begins to despise himself, and he begins to think of himself as a cotton-headed ninny-muggins, which is the closest thing to an expletive in elf slang lore apparently available to him. He feels nothing because he cannot produce what others produce. And what does that produce in him? Dread, despair of nothing! That's not what Jesus means by productivity. Usually I will save, save for the end of the sermon a declaration of the gospel. I need to do it both early and late. When it comes to productivity, it is this. His love for you is never and never will be tied to your productivity in him. His love for you preceded and is sustained independent of any of that productivity, but... That productivity comes from a belief in his love for you. Thomas Merton said this, The root of Christian love is not the will to love, but in the belief that you are loved. And I think you could supplant love there for productivity, and it would just work. The root of all Christian productivity 
is not in the will to produce the fruit in keeping with repentance, but it is in the belief that you are loved. That's the gospel. That's where it comes from. Hanging on every word is all about aspiring to a productivity that comes from his word. But, how does it start? Where does it begin? It begins with something. Productivity doesn't just happen. There's a starting point. And I take that starting point from what turns out to be a scene shift in the parable. Did you notice what happened? It's not just him telling stories and him explaining stories. At the beginning, who's there? Disciples and a large crowd. He draws a crowd. That dude draws a crowd. And then he finishes and, you know, pretend that you're there, right? Try to, try to pretend that you've never heard the parable before. He starts the parable. He tells the parable. And he ends the parable by just saying this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Full stop. That's it. Teacher? <laughs> but what happens? He ends the parable that way with nothing else. He doesn't explain it. He just tells it, and then he stops. And that moment sifts the crowd into two different constituencies. There are some who stick around, the disciples, and as it says in the text, and other people among him. And then everybody else that thought, that's it? How much I pay for this ticket? Good thing it was free. That guy's a nut. Two crowds. Those who are curious, and those who, eh, I'm moving on. And in that moment, what we discover is that those who stick around, the disciples and those who are among him, they begin to inquire. Uh, hmm, the parable. Uh, maybe I'm getting it, but question. What do you mean? And that's where Jesus says the oddest thing in the entire moment. He, he cites something from the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't give Isaiah credit. He just says it. He says this. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything's in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What? You mean you don't want people to get it? You don't, you don't want people to understand? You don't want people to repent? What are you talking about? Is that, that doesn't sound fair. Pause. Um, you ever seen an auto-stereogram? This is an auto-stereogram. At first glance, a billion pixels, right? But if you've seen these before, you know what they require. You have to stare. So I'm going to give everybody 10 seconds. It's actually a picture of Andrew and his two girls. Okay, no, it's not. It's a picture of a shark. If I gave you enough time, you could probably see it. Some of you are going, oh, I'm feeling dizzy. Um, it's an austereogram. And, and what is the nature of that, of that image? If you stare long enough, you have to believe that there's something there. That there is something to be seen. And then you have to pause long enough and exert a kind of patience and concern and a desire to want to make out the forest for the trees before you will ever see it. There are some people that look at that and go, forget it. I'm not doing that. Moving on. 
What a nut. Who does that? Here's where Jesus is getting at. Everybody's wondering, when Jesus comes on the scene, oh, oh, hadn't heard this kind before, hadn't seen this kind of man speak with authority before, maybe he's come to restore the kingdom, which in their minds is, when is God going to come and set everything right? We've been in exile, we've been marauded, we've been thinned out, and now we're under an occupied territory like the Romans who are here. When is he going to fix things? And that's everybody's mystery. And everybody's wondering, maybe Jesus is the key to that mystery. And he says, aha, in fact, I am. However, here's the mystery. The mystery of the kingdom, how we will set everything to right, that mystery is contained in the parables. Meaning that which was formerly hidden is now being revealed in the parables. It is contained in the parables, but it is also concealed by them. What? How can something that contains the mystery of the kingdom can also be that which conceals them? Brothers and sisters and welcome guests, believers and unbelievers, lovers of Jesus and atheists alike. Here's the truth. The understanding of the kingdom comes down to something about curiosity. Curiosity about what he said. If you have no curiosity, then the the autostereogram is just a blank page full of pixels. If you have no curiosity, then Jesus is just a man telling stories and everybody's going, wow, what? There's a curiosity that has to be attached to that. Dallas Willard was a philosopher at the University of Southern California. He was also a Christian. And he kind of takes this idea of curiosity and I think he puts it in, in rather maybe stark terms but it's a distinction that you and I all have to, to deal with because I, uh, there's, a, there's a challenge that we all feel when it comes to what does it mean to be curious and, and what do I have to give myself to? He says this, the path of spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is an attitude. Now, that is oftentimes a hard distinction to realize or to keep. But curiosity invites a certain kind of, involves a certain kind of effort. Not to gain his love, but to understand it. To benefit from it. To actually mean to come to relish it more than just hear it as this thing that kind of lives up here at the top of your head. His intent in speaking his word is that we might produce fruit as a consequence of hearing it. And that productivity, though, begins with curiosity. But it doesn't stay there. And here's where we get to both the last point and the most important certain things that I think Jesus says and what I need to say. Yes, Hanging on every word is all about productivity from his word, which begins with curiosity about his word. But that curiosity is meant to blossom into a third thing, namely, hospitality to his word. Hospitality. That there's a way of understanding it and a kind of responsiveness to it that is very specific that I think that word captures it. Let me, let me, make it, let me ground it in the text here. What does Jesus do after those who stuck around to ask more questions say? He goes, if you don't get this one, you're not going to get anything else that I say. And then he's kind enough to say, let me explain it to you. 
And if you've heard the explanation to that parable, it's possible that you've heard at least one sermon in which you think, coming out of that sermon, that the preacher meant that there are four kinds of people. And you thought, which one of them is saved? That's the wrong question. This is not four kinds of people. This is four kinds of listening. Four kinds of soils. Four kinds of receiving and hearing what he's had to say, three of which are abortive, one of which is true. And the true character of a true hearing of his word is a word that I, I, I just think it has to do with hospitality, of being hospitable. Now, what is that? Hospitality. You mean I serve cake? What is that all about? Bilbo, he, he rescues the gold for the dwarves from smog, and then he participates in the battle of the five armies, and then he has to deal with Thorin Oakenshield, who comes after him, who feels betrayed, but at the end, they all work out their differences, and here at the very end of The Hobbit, you hear Bilbo to his fellow, to, to dwarves say this. Well, I think I'll slip quietly away. Will you tell the others I said goodbye? You can tell them yourself. If any of you are ever passing Bag End, uh, tea is at four. There's plenty of it. You are welcome anytime. <laughs> I don't bother knocking. <laughs> He's telling them that he wants to be a good host. Tea is at four. Door's always open. You don't have to knock. That's what a host is. That's what hospitality looks like. And I think Jesus in the explanation of this parable is showing us what does it mean to be hospitable to his word. And I've said that there are four versions of hearing here, three of which don't work. They're negative examples. But I would like to suggest to you that even the negative examples sketch for us a profile of what it means to be hospitable to his word. When he talks about the seed that falls on the path and the birds that come and get it and steal it away, what does he explain that to be? That's Satan. He loves to steal Jesus' word from you. There's nothing that pleases him more than to distract you and to lead you to ignore anything that Jesus has to say. He loves that. He's good with that. He prefers that. What Jesus is meaning to say by using that explanation or using that illustration is that when it comes to hanging on every word, what it means to be hospitable to his word is first of all about giving it priority. Priority to his voice in a way that you give priority to no other voices. Rather than deferring, putting it off, it's more than an afterthought, unless it's a priority, unless you give it a priority, that means that you are giving other voices their own priority. There's no such thing as just not giving it priority. It just means that you've chosen to give other voices priority. And when you do that, you are being shaped. 
you're being, to borrow a very old word, you're being catechized. Now, kids, you go to school, you learn your alphabet. Why? You're being catechized in words and spelling. When you do your math facts, what's happening? You're being catechized in math so that you know how to do math, so that you can eventually maybe do calculus. I hated calculus. But you're being catechized in every place because of the things that you are reviewing on a daily basis. The words that you give the most priority to are shaping you. They are catechizing you. They are forming you. And so Alan Jacobs said this a while back that I think should make us all shudder just a little bit when he said this. Culture catechizes. If people are getting one kind of catechesis for half an hour per week and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out? People come to believe what they're most thoroughly and intensively catechized to believe, and that catechesis comes not from the churches, but from the media they consume, or rather the media that consumes them. Now that might be a little too on the nose. But where's the lie? What Alan Jacobs is suggesting, and I think what Jesus is meaning to tell us by way of that illustration, is something that either William Blake said or Marshall McLuhan. We become what we behold. What are you beholding? It's probably a good window into what you're becoming. Hanging on his every word, hospitable listening has to do with giving it a priority, but that's not the only place he illustrates. What is this thing about the rocky soil that's only an inch deep that somehow when the sun comes out, uh, the thing fades, it shrivels up? Why? Some of you grew plants before. You know you you planted in rocky soil and, and you don't water it in deep What happens? The sun is coming. And it will take the plant out. It will shrivel up and die because it can't withstand the heat because it's got no root. What is Jesus going with that? Look, if your attention to whatever he's had to say lasts these 30 minutes and nothing further, how do I put this? The sun is coming, friends. Difficulty is on its way if it isn't already there. Namely, this idea of persecution. It's a big word, and it's, I'm almost reluctant to even use that word in our setting. I, I don't know that any of us can really claim the word persecution when I know of other f- brethren in other parts of the world that are maybe not sure if they're going to you know, live tonight or whether they're going to be arrested. That's persecution. Here's the deal. In this world, if you speak for him or argue for him or act in his name in any explicit fashion, it's possible that people are going to go, oh no, it's one of them. (sighs) And you might get that, you might get ridicule, you might get overlooked, you might get chastised, you might get any number of things. It'll come your way. And what happens if that comes your way? You kind of got two choices. You're either going to say, I, I am not going to be out there anymore like that because I don't like that pain. I don't, I don't want to do that. Thanks, no. Or, or you can say, hmm, I think he told me this was going to be part of the deal. I think he told me that before they hate you, they're going to hate me. And then in this world, you're going to have trouble. And they're going to take you out. And they're not going to like what you have to say. He's going to say all that. Look, um, you ever cook and you're working with grease and you splash a little water in the pan, and that grease flares up and lands on your hand, and you get scalded, what do you do? Um, You don't just stand there. You you probably go get some salve. And and you don't just sort of take the salve and glob and just stare at it. You rub it in. You have to. That's how it's supposed to work. 
That's how it soothes. That's how it cools. That's how it heals. Jesus is telling us, whatever you might hear from me, there will come a moment in which you're going to have to kind of rub it in. Not just sort of let it sit at the top of your brain. Because difficulty is coming, and, and he's going to need to be able to whisper in your ear, do not worry about those who can kill the body. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Whether you want to take the illustration or the metaphor of watering it in so that the root gets deep, or you want to take the illustration of the salve rubbing it in, the point is the same. Hospitable hearing is about working whatever he has to say in deeply. And that means you've got to think about it. That means you've got to wrestle with God and even spit and scream and gnash your teeth about it. The third thing, the third illustration, it's probably more in our wheelhouse. I think you and I don't know a thing about persecution, and I would dare say that most of what anybody might experience in the West or in America is not really persecution. It's something else. It's, it's challenge. It's struggle. It's, you know, stuff. But the thing that we're more worried about, the thing that should challenge us more, is based upon something that I read from an article by Paul Kingsnorth recently. He said this, What is this force that could be so powerful that it can dissolve away centuries of our cultural inheritance can dissolve our forests and our oceans, can dissolve our great faiths, nations, and traditions, everything that makes a human life real, and replace it with this pleasure dome. Want. Want is that acid. Jesus talks about seed that falls in soil that is full of thorns, and those thorns, do they what? They, they choke, and they take away the life so that the thing can't grow. And what's the illustration, what's the explanation Jesus makes there? Friends, there are all sorts of things that you, are, that you are preoccupied with in this world and so many things that you are either wanting or have been told to want, have been catechized to want, and now those things take center stage. And it's no wonder that you have no place in your heart or your world for him. Want is the acid, and it's the acid of my soul. And it's the acid of yours too. So what is a hospitable hearing? John Chrysostom was a theologian of the 4th century. And he said, if you, don't have, if you have wealth, but you have nothing else in your life that is of greater value to you than your wealth, then two things will happen to you. You will become anxious or you will become soft. You will be so preoccupied either what you don't have or keeping what you do have or making more of what you already have and you'll be anxious about that and it will grip you. Or because you are so accustomed to having whatever you want, whenever you want and all that kind of control, you are not ready for when it snows. And you are soft and you cannot be content when you find yourself in want. So what does it mean to listen hospitably? It is to let Jesus, in so many words, take you by the shoulders and say unto you, the Lord is your portion. He is enough for you. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. All of those things that he says to us about the things that we might otherwise become anxious about or soft as a consequence of, he's there to hold us at our shoulders and say, mm, listen, I'm your portion, I'm enough. 
all said, what is that soil that is most hospitable? It comes with a certain expectation when you come to his word. And that expectation is nicely and succinctly put by what Paul tells Timothy in his first letter. He says this, All scriptures breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When you come to what he says, if you're going to hang on his word, then you have to expect to be taught and shaped. That you have to expect to be called out and not immediately get defensive about how he calls you out. But at the same time, you have to believe that he's out to show you his way. And that he's out to train your heart in that way. Friends, it's not just because we have building space and qualified, capable, loving people who are out to teach you that we're doing this discipleship kickoff. How do you learn to hang on his every word? Well, let us tell you. You've got several options in which you can. And far be it from me, for those of you who already have a rhythm of learning to hang on his word, I'm not here to offer you a new one, a better one than the one that you're already doing. But for those of you who have no rhythm whatsoever or who have been occupied by your smartphone on most mornings like I have, we have something for you that we developed this week. There are bookmarks out on the info table that I'm inviting you not to a year of study but to four weeks of practicing this hospitable hearing by listening to selections from the Gospel of John and letting it form your morning or whenever it is that you can give the most generous attention that you can. These are out there. You can also download it from the resource page of our sermon page. Form your own rhythm over four weeks by listening to selections from the Gospel of John. Now look, let me land it plain this way because I... Even if you're not thinking it, you're probably feeling that what I'm saying to you is that you and I should give more attention to what he's had to say. And that's not untrue. But that word should, look, there's plenty of moments where you should do stuff when you don't feel like doing it. All of us know that. It's how you grow up. But if should is the only motivation, that will not last very long. What will? to believe something about the one who is inviting you to hang on every word. And so I want to end this sermon by sort of a longish quote that I have never heard from C.S. Lewis before from his book called The Problem of Pain. And the words themselves, they do more than just inform us. They are almost a work of art into the way that they're put. And that's great because the, the whole substance of what he's about to say has something to do with art and you such that when you leave the gallery today, I hope that you will not fail, if you haven't already, to peruse the art. It's not going to be here forever. But listen to what C.S. Lewis says about God and about us in the metaphor of art. I might indeed have learned, even from the poets, that love is something more stern and splendid than mere kindness. Kindness merely as such cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. He has often rebuked us and condemned us. He has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. We are not metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art.
over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother, a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were alive. One can imagine a life picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. And here he closes. You ask for a loving God, you have one. Not a, seni- seni- uh, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. But the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work. If that is your God, should doesn't really work. The better question is, why wouldn't you want to listen? If that's who he is, why wouldn't I want to listen? He loves you. And the root of all Christian love is the belief that you are loved. Let him remind you and tell you. Let's pray. You've not given us a project. We were never your project. We were the object of your delight, even when we were hostile to you as enemies. Help us to believe that, so that in what we give our attention to would be worthy of the object that has invited us to it. Help us to love, but to believe first that you first loved us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.